0: This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Before I actually get into the message, open your Bibles as you would to Matthew chapter 7. I'm not going to preach from Matthew chapter 7, but Matthew chapter 7 is the burden that's on my heart. Uh, the title of the message is this. Don't be surprised when you face Christ, because you will face Him someday. And in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21, it says, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And many will say to me at that, uh, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Till you read the next verse. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I am greatly, greatly troubled by what I see today. Uh, It starts, I believe, with our evangelistic methods. We don't do it like they did it in the Bible times. And I don't have time to get into that. I'll just say they, they never use love as a motivation to bring someone to Christ. They always use the wrath of God. But I'm greatly troubled when I see people in churches uh, or as church visitation or people that come and stuff, and they make a profession of faith. And we say, okay, now did you mean that? Yeah. Well, then you're going to heaven. That's not the way they did it in the Bible times. There had to be something that showed that there was a change in their life, that something was real. There had to be fruit, meat for repentance. There used to be something that shows true repentance. And that's kind of where I want to go. I want to look at four evidences that we should see if a person's faith is real. Now, we're saved by grace through faith without work. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. I've already taught in this church on faith, but I'm going to take just a moment here to review uh, God's definition of faith. And then we're going to look at those evidences, those four evidences that we should see if a person is truly uh, trusting in Christ, if their faith is real. And faith and belief are very, very closely related. You can't have faith without belief. But on the other hand, just believing something to be true is not faith. And we need to understand that. Anyway, in in Hebrews 11.1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And very quickly, you'll notice that faith has two parts to it. First of all, it has substance. It is the substance of things hoped for. Now, as Christians, we have some things we hope for. It talks about in the Bible the hope of eternal life for Christians. Now, that's not talking about the hope that you're going to get it. That's talking to people who already have it. And it's talking about those things we hope for down the road because we have eternal life. And that's what it's talking about. And and there's something that is, there's the substance of those things. I defined the word before, but lest you forget, I'll define it again. That word substance means substance, to stand underneath. This cup has weight. And when I set it down on this podium, it stops when it gets there. Because the podium has substance, it has something that supports it from underneath. That's exactly what the Greek word means, to support from underneath. First of all, there is something that supports the things we hope for. And what is that something? That something is our belief in the promises of God or the Word of God. God has promised us one day that we will be taken away from the very presence of sin. Now, that's a pretty good thing. Well, that's a promise that we have. And why do we have that hope? Because God said so. I've had people ask me why my family turned out the way it turned out, my kids and my grandkids now. And, and it's very simple. I can tell you the secret in one sentence. We believe the Bible. And when I say that, I mean we believe the Bible. We don't believe those parts that we like and try and change those parts we don't like. If we don't like what it says, we still believe it, and we try and follow it. I mean, I don't like the fact that most likely my stepfather, who was a great father to me, is probably burning in hell today. I don't like that fact. But the Bible says that if he was without Christ, and so far as I know he was, that's where he's at. I don't like I had the greatest mother-in-law you could ever have. You don't ever want to tell uh, mother-in-law jokes around me that put down mother-in-laws. I'll get angry. But most likely, my mother-in-law is in hell today. I don't like that. But I believe it because God said so. And God gives me peace through it, too. As a matter of fact, until my wife got saved, she wrestled with the death of her mother. And then when she got saved, God took the pain away. You believe what the Bible says. If you really believe it, you try and do what it says. Try and follow it. And then the second part of it, it says the evidence of things not seen. Now, when I tell you I believe that... uh, one day, soon, we're all, all Christians are going to be caught out of here. Can you see that? No, you can, it's an unseen thing, right? But can you tell whether or not I really believe it? Only if I live like I believe it. So the evidence of, of a part of faith is the fact that what we believe works itself out in our lives. Now, the, the Bible teaches very clearly very clearly that what's in the heart will eventually show up on the outside. You know, you can put a a coat over it or a sweater over it and cover it for a while, but eventually it'll come out, What you really like inside. But faith is is a two-part thing. It's believing something enough to where it works itself out in your life. That's what faith is. It's really not difficult. That's enough on that subject because the other parts are very important. Go to uh, Second Corinthians chapter two for this next one. Uh, The the very first evidence of true faith is a changed life. In Second Corinthians chapter five and verse seventeen, most of you probably can quote the verse. uh, But it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold all things are become new. Now, about 40 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, my wife and I started talking about some things that we were seeing in in those who were supposed to be saved that didn't line up with this and many other passages in the Bible. But it tells us here that that, uh, if we're in Christ, something happens. Now, if we're in Christ, if we're saved, we're in Christ. There's no way you can be saved and not be in Christ. And there's no way you can be in Christ and not be saved. So if we're saved, we're in Christ. Uh, we, have, we have been joined with Him. And uh, if we're in Christ, we're supposed to work walk in a certain way. Now, we like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we like saying, well, I don't have to do works. I don't have to earn my salvation. And that's exactly right. But verse 10 says, but we are created, a new creature, Right. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So if we're professing to be saved and we're not walking in good works, something's wrong. Something is drastically wrong. Now, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be sinlessly perfect without any sin in your life, but the sin is going to get less and less as you grow in Christ. You're going to hate it when you catch yourself sinning. When a first person first gets saved, they don't even know that some of the things they're doing are sin yet. So there's a growing time that's involved in there. But in sal- at salvation, we're, we become a new creature. We were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. As we're a new creature in uh, in Galatians chapter uh, six and verse fifteen. Uh, I can't quote it exactly, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there. But but it it says that circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. What matters is a new creature. So it's not what's on the outside that matters. It's not what I do. It's not whether I was circumcised. It's not whether I was baptized. It's not whether I am in church every service. That's not what it's about. If the inside is converted, if you are a new creature on the inside, you will get baptized. You will be in church every time you possibly can. That doesn't just mean Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. That means on the special meetings and things like this. Now, if you have to work and you can't be there, or if you're sick or something like this, of course you can't be there. But if you can be there, you'll be there because you want to be there. I know a lot of people that are in church because, well, that's what we've always done. It's not a good reason to be in church. Good reason to be in church because you want to be there. You know, I, I praise God because I don't remember from the time, I mean, I was saved before I got married. But I didn't grow because uh moved away from where there was a good church. My family didn't go to church and things, and it's a long story. But but I didn't grow. But once we got into church as a family, and my and my wife and kids got saved, I don't remember one time, not one single time, my kids ever saying, Dad, I don't want to go to church today. Not one single time. Because that's where we wanted to be. I mean, I, I missed... Uh, I missed a Sunday evening, uh, um, not this past week, but the week before because I was sick, and I'll tell you something, I missed being there Amen. because I wanted to be there, and, and, and so, uh, so uh, if we're a new creature, things are different. It says old things are passed away. The things we used to do, you know, going down to the bar, going out to the honky-tonk, doing, doing all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, the wrong kind of music, all those things, they should pass away. They should be gone. Now, it's going to take time. There are habits that that take time to break. I wish I had never smoked. But the fact that I did makes me understand the struggling that people go through when they try and quit. It's not an easy thing to do. Before you're saved, you probably are bored stiff in church. Well, not these modern things that call themselves churches where they have all the entertainment and the rock groups and all that kind of stuff. Maybe not. But in a a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, you're probably bored stiff. But when you're saved, all things become new. You say, wow, I'm glad I get to be there. What am I going to learn this time? What do I get to learn today? What can I find out today? You know, I'll tell you something. If I go to church and I don't either get something that lifts me up, which I don't get down very much, or something that steps on my toes and tells me something I've got to fix, I haven't been in church. We need, to, we need church because we need to be taught what we need to do. So the first evidence that a person has truly been saved is that there is a real change in their life now these other three that i'm going to look at are really just an extension of that the next one is there will be a love for the word of god in acts chapter 2 in verses 41 and 42 it says "Uh, then they that gladly received his word were baptized And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. First of all, it says they gladly received the word. That means that that they gladly received the word that that, uh, Peter was preaching that day as the word of God. And because they received it as the word of God, it worked effectively in them. It worked. It caused something to happen in their lives because they received it as the Word of God. They were obedient to what the Word said. There are those who believe that baptism has something to do with your salvation. There are many of them that, uh, that believe, that Baptists believe you have to be baptized to be saved. Remember the, 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 the TV program, The Waltons? They were, quote, Baptists. And they believed that they got saved when they got baptized. So they weren't Baptists at all. Because Baptists believe you have to be saved first. Baptismal regeneration starts with the Catholics, but Protestants all believe it. Uh, uh, Some Baptists believe it, or some at least think Baptists believe it. But uh, uh, it says that baptism is required for salvation, while the Bible says salvation is required for baptism. But they obeyed. They were baptized. Then what were they done next? They were added to the church there at Jerusalem. By the way, if you think the church started on the day of Pentecost, then how were they added to the church on the day of Pentecost? It had to exist before the day of Pentecost. I know it existed back in Matthew chapter 18 because they were told if they had a problem with a brother and they couldn't settle it without taking it before the church, they were taking it before the church. So it had to exist. But baptism is the first commandment, and they did it. 3,000 of them did it. And it said they, they continued steadfastly in some things. First of all, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, what's the apostles' doctrine? Simple, New Testament. There you have it. By the way, I'm sure that somewhere, some church there, you have a church covenant. But that church covenant, you should not let anybody join this church without agreeing to the, to that church covenant up there. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were in agreement with one with another. Um, they continued in fellowship. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Okay, first of all, we come to church to provoke others to love and to doing good works. Then in uh, verse 25, which is more familiar to us, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we're supposed to be in church, and they, they got together in church, and they fellowshiped in church. Part of church is coming to be preached preached to, and that's an important part, probably the most important part. But another important part is fellowship. It's getting together. It's encouraging one another to do what's right. Exhort doesn't mean to encourage. It means to encourage to do what's right. When we say to encourage somebody, we're talking about lifting somebody up when they're down. It's not what exhort, exhortation is about. It's about getting people to do what's right. And so we're to do that one another. But, but it, there's a fellowship time there. That's why we as Baptists like to have fellowships around a meal. And, and so so we like to do that. But, but uh, by the way, how many of you have heard it taught that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. I disagree. Ten are. They say keeping the Sabbath. Well, we don't worship on Saturday so we don't keep the Sabbath. That's not what Sabbath means. Sabbath means a holy day. And we're commanded right here to keep the Sabbath. We're commanded to gather together. We're told other places that it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. So the principle is still there. We don't use the same terminology, but the principle is still there. We gather together. We set a day apart for God. We gather together. We're taught His Word. We we fellowship one with another, and we shouldn't do work on that day. We shouldn't make it our shopping day. It should be a day for the Lord. Now, it's not a... uh, thing that if you have to go by the store and pick something up on Sunday that God's going to strike you dead. It's not that type of thing, but we should set that day aside for the Lord. Breaking of bread. Now, I believe that has two meanings, and Baptists are good at both of them. I think the first meaning and probably the primary meaning is the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know where this church stands on the subject, but I'm going to tell you where the Bible stands on it. The Lord's Supper is for the members of a local church. It's called... Closed communion today. It used to be called close communion, because it used to be everybody believed that that uh, you had to be part of their church group before you partook. But then, when they started, oh, when they started the Presbyterians started letting the Lutherans come and the Catholics and all this kind of stuff, then they had this new thing which we call open communion. The Lord's Supper's purpose. It's a church ordinance, and its purpose is the purity of that local church. That's what it's purpose for. That's what baptism is all about, too. That's why we don't accept what they call alien baptism. We only accept Baptist baptism, and then it's getting hard to know if Baptist baptism is any good anymore. The way that so many churches are going. The last one, and in prayers. Just a few moments ago, we did that. Oh, I forgot to tell you the other one. Getting together around a meal and having fellowship. I believe that's another thing that is meant by breaking your bread. Because if you read Acts chapter 2, you, you'll find that they went from house to house, and they were breaking bread. That wasn't the Lord's Supper. That wasn't the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a solemn ceremony of, of remembrance, remembering what Christ did for us. That was getting together around a meal and discussing the things of God. My favorite, you want to get me, if you, get, if you see me dead tired, I can't stay awake. Just start me talking about the Scriptures. Remember Jesus at the well? He was dead tired, so he sat down to rest, and they went in to, to uh, buy some food and come back. When he came back, he was just full of energy and going because he got to talk about the things of God with, a, with a, a woman there. See, I love that. We should all love that. But now, the, 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 the last one of these things they continue steadfastly in was um, in prayers, which we just did just a little bit ago. We pray together. And, and that's an important part of the thing. And they can continued steadfastly. Let me point something out. It says that there were about 3,000 that were added to the church that, that day, and they continued steadfastly. They, what's the antecedent of they? 3,000, not 300. 3,000 people were baptized and added to the church, and 3,000 people continued steadfastly in these things. Today, if we get 10% of those who make a profession of faith to continue steadfastly in anything, we're doing really well. It ought not be that way. That's what my burden is. That's where my problem lies, folks. I have a real problem with that. Okay, the, the, the uh, third characteristic we should look for, or evidence we should look for, in, uh, uh, in somebody who's got true faith and is truly saved, is a love for righteousness. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. All of us here have a mother. Most of us here have a husband or a wife. If you love your mother or you love your husband or you love your wife, you enjoy doing those things that please them, do you not? And if you don't do those things, they start questioning your love, do they not? You think it's any different with God? If we say we love him and we just go around ignoring his principles, not doing what he says, not doing what pleases him, how can that be showing love? We should be searching the scriptures to find out what we should be doing. We we should be looking for those things that that he wants us to do, and we should have a joy in doing them. This, uh, for the next 10 days, my daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter, you know, they're out of town. Tonight they're in Missouri, then they're going to be in Oklahoma City, and then they'll be back. My granddaughter has chickens. When she comes back from this trip, I'm telling her those chickens have got to go because when she started, she took good care of them. Now she doesn't take good care of them anymore. It falls on us. But I have to go out there in the morning, and it's before I have, I I let my wife have the bathroom first, and I have to get out there before uh, I get in the bathroom, make sure the chickens are out, make sure they've got food, make sure they've got water, and the way it's been, make sure they've got water that's not hard. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, I don't like doing that but if I don't do it my wife has to do it and she has a hard time carrying the water down to the chicken thing because it's heavy I, en- I don't like doing it but I enjoy doing it for her that's what I'm talking about when it talks about loving the Lord we do what pleases Him because we want to do it there's a verse that uh, I don't know if I wrote it down here or not Yeah. It's uh, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. Uh, It's not hard to keep His commandments. It says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Well, that's fine. That's the same thing we read in the other verse. Then it goes on to say, and His commandments are not grievous. It's not a burden to keep God's commandments. It's actually a joy. At least it should be. We should want to do what He says. Now, uh, my pastor uh, preached uh, last Sunday, he preached a two-part message on on, uh, on um, the, the two great commandments. And uh, he was preaching on love, and, and the two great commandments are love God with all yourself and then love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he said there are 613 commandments in the Bible. I think he's wrong, because I think there's more. I mean, there's a lot more. I don't think anybody's ever counted them. I've heard numbers as high as 900. Well, I don't know how many there are. I just know there's a bunch of them. And we should want to keep them all. And we're going to come across one that says, well, I can't do that. I mean, you're a new Christian, and all of a sudden somebody says, you're supposed to give 10% of your income to the church? Or to God, actually, but through the church? I can't afford to do that. I'm having trouble getting by on 100%. But if you love God, you'll do it. And you'll watch Him make the difference up somehow. Ways you'll never expect. Not necessarily giving you more money, But lowering your expenses or something, he'll take care of it. A love for righteousness. And this last one, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, it says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourges every son, uh, whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof chastisement were of all our partakers, then ye are bastards, and not sons. I don't particularly like that word that it used there, but it's used properly and it has a proper meaning, but it means that you're illegitimate children. None of us have resisted to blood against sin. We all still have it in our life and none of us are dead for it. That's basically what it's talking about. Uh, if, if you were to look up in verse 1 of that same chapter, it, it talks about, about those sins that so easily beset us. So I looked up that word beset. How many of you bothered to look that up? It means to surround or to encompass. And there are sins that we allow to trap us and they come around us and we kept, keep falling ourselves, kept finding ourselves falling into those sins. Everybody has something in their life that they fight. And they say, I don't want to do this again, Lord. Keep me from doing it ever again. And next thing you know, you're doing it again. We all have something like that. Big or small, we all have something like that. And and we should work on getting rid of them. But 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 we have those things, uh, it's because we still have a constant battle with the old nature. When we got saved, we got a new nature. We became partakers of the, uh, of the divine nature. We didn't become divine, but we became, came, became partakers of the divine nature. But we still have the old nature, and there's a battle. That's why we're waiting for the rapture, because that old nature is going to be gone. We don't have to wrestle with it anymore. But when we fall into sin, and don't repent, and God doesn't give us a good spanking, we're not His children. That's what it's telling us in this passage of Scripture. So let me wind this up. Salvation is more than just believing in Jesus. I would like to remind you that devils believe also and they tremble. Salvation is received by faith, and faith has real evidence that works itself out in the lives of a saved person. In 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, And hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ. If you say you know God, and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. There's not many preachers who will stand up and say that today. But that's what God says, and we need to be willing to stand up and say it. There are four evidences that we should use to examine ourselves, make sure we're saved. Remember, those people in Matthew chapter 7, where I started out, they all thought they were saved, and they weren't. So we need to examine ourselves, and these are four things we can look at to see whether or not we're saved. And we should examine ourselves. Now, I'm quite sure that the vast majority of you here tonight, if you examine yourself, you're going to pass the test, I think, because this is Wednesday night. You probably wouldn't be here otherwise. But there may be someone that's just here because that's what we do on Wednesday night. Here's the most important part that I want you to get out of this, though, folks. There are a lot of people out there saying they're born again, they're Christians. We can't tell for sure if somebody's saved, but we can get a pretty good idea by putting this test, this test in there. So they're for us to examine other people. That's the main reason I wanted you to have that tonight. And those who hear this on the radio, that's the main reason I want you to have it, is to examine those who are making professions of faith today because so many of them aren't getting saved. We're telling, they're going to, telling them they're going to heaven. It makes it extremely difficult to really bring them to Christ later on because they've been told a lie. Okay? So it's important. Nothing happens without reaching the lost. However, the Great Commission has three parts. Has reaching the lost... It has baptizing them, which is getting them into church. It has teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And if you read the New Testament, that last one's where Paul put most of his time. What I'm getting at is we need to honestly look at people, determine whether or not we think they're saved. Now, we're told not to judge. But that's based on a passage of Scripture that says if you've got a beam in your eyes, don't judge somebody who's got a moat in theirs. You say, if you've got big sin in your life, get your life st- uh, straightened up first. Then you go try and fix the guy who's got the moat. Okay? That, that kind of judgment we're not to do. But the Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. I would much rather look at somebody that's truly saved but's not living for the Lord and say they're not saved and work to get them saved and be wrong there than to look so well, I don't know, they don't look like it, but they say they're saved, so there must be, and so I don't try, and they go to hell. Those are the choices we have, and these are the, some, some of the criteria we can use to come up with that. If we're truly saved, there should be some changes in our lives. We should have a, a love for the Word of God. We should have a love for righteousness, and when we don't straighten ourselves out, God should give us a good spanking. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina, Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.